Take your Bibles, if you would, and go to Micah chapter 5 today. We're going to continue on in our look at this Christmas season uh, with this theme that we have taken, O Come, Emmanuel. And over the last couple of weeks um, in this series, we've looked at the anticipations of Jesus, particularly in his birth and his work uh, for the on behalf of, the, of mankind at the death of the cross. We began in Genesis chapter 3 with the promised victor, that Jesus would come and he would crush the head of the serpent, and he would do so at the cross of G- uh, when he died there, and of course at the resurrection. He gives life to all who trust in him. And then last Sunday night, we went to Exodus chapter 12 and saw Jesus as the pictured substitute. We looked at the Passover that that was established when the Israelites left Egypt and showed how the lamb that was given there on that night was a picture of Jesus Christ who would be given in sacrifice for us. And so today, we go to Micah chapter 5, and we look at this idea of the powerful ruler. Now, This is going to take a step aside a little bit from the first Advent that we celebrate at Christmas because most of the things that you read here are going to be be, uh, come to pass and are going to be true of Jesus when he comes again to rule and to reign for eternity. But this is exactly what Christmas is about. It is about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this is a message today that is a message full of hope for a believer. Because if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are part of God's eternal kingdom. And the things that that he talks about here, he's talking specifically to the nation of Israel. Now, I don't want to get us confused. The church is not Israel, okay? However, the kingdom that Jesus sets up isn't just for Israel either. The kingdom that Jesus sets up will have both Israel and the church, those of us who are saved in Jesus Christ, living together. And so the promises that we see here Um, are things to look forward to as Jesus rules and reigns. Let's consider Micah chapter 5 together as as we prepare uh, for our time in the Word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel." whose coming forth is from, from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, with delay not for a man, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. 
Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands." And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Father, we thank you for this time we have set aside in our service to study the word of God together. We pray today as we consider this chapter from the book of Micah that you would speak to us today through your word. You would encourage us. You would convict us. You would grow us in yourself. You would point us to who Jesus is, King of kings and Lord of lords. And you would point us ahead to the work that will happen when he returns again, that he will reign forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we ask that you would give us a vision today of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he will do. And you would help that to inform our faith today. Lord, for one who has never trusted in you as Savior, you would help them to see that Jesus is King. And he is worthy, not only worthy, but he, he, he demands our trust in him for salvation from sin. You would draw them to yourself. Lord, for Christians today, you would help us to be convicted by the truth that you that Jesus is King. He is the Lord of our lives. And God, like Israel, we in our own lives stray and tolerate sin and go into sin willingly. Help us to be convicted of that and be drawn back to you and, and walk um, in, in a right relationship with you, enjoying that relationship. And Lord, we pray that you would have your way in our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. Sometimes in life, things are not always like they, we think they are. At Christmas time, this is an exciting game. I enjoy making sure that a gift's true nature is hidden, if I can do that, right? Uh, taking small items and placing them in very large boxes. Adding padding to reduce the noise and so on, our basic tricks of the trade. You know, some people are more elaborate in their works. I really enjoy um, seeing people online who wrap their presents up to look like something it's not. My favorite ones are when people take some random object and they, they put all this cardboard and things together, make it look like a cat or something like that that's wrapped up under your tree, right? I know that alarms some people, okay, that you would never want a cat for Christmas, okay? But... Uh, it's always kind of a, a, a unique thing to see, you know, and say, wow, I mean, that's not remotely close to what I thought it was. You know, I thought I was getting a guitar and I got a pair of socks, you know, or whatever, because things aren't always what they seem to be. As the Jews considered the prophecies of the Old Testament, if you get to Jesus' time, and you have the Jews in, in, that live with, with, in, around Jesus, and we, we looked at this at Luke chapter 4 last week after the kids' program, the people there are looking back on the prophecies of the Old Testament. Even still today, they're looking back on the prophecies of the Old Testament. Things didn't develop as they seemed like they would develop. You see, the prophets foretold the promised Messiah, and as they did, they saw a distant future. And in that future, there are two major events that I want to highlight here for you that are revealed in these prophecies. The first major event was that the coming, the Messiah would come to suffer and die for the sons of mankind. That is clearly shown in the Old Testament scriptures. 
Isaiah 53 is just one of those passages that highlights that the Messiah would come to suffer and die for the sins of his people. The second major event is that the Messiah would come to rule and to reign over all the earth and thereby subjugating Israel's and God's enemies underneath his reign. And as the people look back on the prophecies of the Old Testament, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament scriptures, which part of these prophecies did the people key in on the most? The second one, right? They keyed in on on the, the coming of the Messiah to rule and to reign. We looked at our passage in, in several months ago now, uh, in John chapter 12, at the triumphal entry, how the people celebrated Jesus as he came in. Why? Because they expected him to set up his kingdom. They expected him to overthrow the Roman government. So thus, when Jesus came to fulfill this first advent, that he would suffer and die for the sins of mankind, the people were taken aback by what he said. They were offended at his words, and ultimately, most were turned away by his death by crucifixion. And of course, the crucifixion is a a key point of something where, where the Jews especially struggle with Jesus as the Messiah, because the Old Testament tells us that everyone who dies on a tree is cursed. And surely, the, the, the conquering Messiah is not one who is cursed by death on a tree. When in fact, of course, that was God's plan all along. That he would bear the curse of our sin on the tree. Paul probably said it the best. In 1 Corinthians one twenty three. he said this. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But see, here's the good news. The Messiah is predicted all throughout Scripture to have two advents. The good news, this is good news for the Jews and all for who trust in Jesus for salvation from sin. Emmanuel, God with us, is coming again. And when he does... He will come as the powerful ruler pictured here in Micah chapter 5. Over the last couple of weeks, we have seen Jesus' work in the first advent. And now today, I want to take time and focus in his, on his work in the second when he comes again. This is who Jesus is. And we, as we examine this passage today, we will rejoice in and will be taught by its powerful words regarding Jesus. And see that because Jesus is the Messiah, all who trust him look forward to his return to claim final victory. Because Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent, he is also the one who would come to rule and to reign over all of Israel and God's enemies. And if you know Jesus Christ today, if you have a relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus who who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, who rose again and is with God the Father in eternity in heaven, then you have this hope that he is coming back. He's going to claim victory. And that is good news because we live in a very dark world. We live in a world where it seems like this time of year everything gets a little better, right? At least there's some coat of paint that goes on all the darkness. But underneath it's still dark. Underneath what we see around us at Christmas time is still motivated by greed. It's still motivated by by selfish ambition. We look around and say, is there any hope? The scripture tells us there is hope. We've been called to live in that hope today. And so let's take a look today at Micah chapter 5 and see Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the powerful ruler 
that he is predicted to be. And we see, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, the rulers rise that is predicted by Micah many years, hundreds of years, before Jesus was even born. We see, first of all, in verse 1, Israel's humiliation, where Micah says, Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, Micah is a book full of warnings and indictments. Micah prophesied in Israel and Judah, and he prophesied in what is known in the period of Israel's history as the divided kingdom. And here, he he brought God's message of impending judgment for the people's failures to obey God. You see, God promised his people judgment when they disobeyed and abandoned him. Now, that judgment did not always come immediately, but it would come. Micah then was used by God to prepare the nation for that judgment that would one day come. And here in verse 1, we see that this is a warning that Micah is giving and a prediction of God's coming judgment. He warns Jerusalem to muster her troops. In fact, the, the term here that's used to talk about Jerusalem is daughter of troops. And this wording, what it's doing is describing Jerusalem as a city surrounded by troops in a siege. Micah is here looking ahead to a day when God will judge the city of Jerusalem and thus Judah through the nation of Babylon. One day the Lord would raise up the Babylonian empire in judgment against his people. And when he does, it will be to the detriment and the humiliation of the people of Israel. Micah predicts here that, the, that, that this army this siege, that has laid siege to the city will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What that is is a reference to the humiliation that the people would experience in this judgment. God's chosen and special people would be given to judgment and humiliation. The king of that time, Zedekiah, would literally be struck by the invading army. We read that uh, in the records of the history of Israel. And if you read this in verse 1 and truly understand what we've just said, there's not a lot of hope in this message, is there? This is not a promise of, of greatness. In fact, what Micah is giving you is a snapshot of ruin and despair. It's a moment of darkness in the nation of Israel. However, we see that this is at the same time God's holy and perfect work. Something you and I must continue to understand is this. God always judges sin. Now, he always has and he always will because it is an attack against God's holy nature. Thus, God must judge sin and he's the only one who can judge sin. When Israel abandoned God, she chose the path of judgment from God for her sin. However, at the same time, God never left his people without hope. Even in the prediction of coming humiliation, God reveals the majesty of his promised Messiah that will come to Israel. Because you continue from verse 1, you see this humiliation, and to verse 2, you begin to see the Messiah's majesty that would appear. And you begin to see that contrast at the very beginning of verse 2 where it says this, but you, okay, here's what's going to happen in Jerusalem, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Verse 2, 
is a great contrast to what has just been prophesied for Jerusalem and thus Judah. Because instead of judgment and humiliation, God promises great things from the city of Bethlehem one day. Bethlehem, which is also here known by the older name Ephrathah, was a small city in Israel. It's not even named in the list of Israel's major cities when you read some of the lists in the Old Testament. It was relatively insignificant. Why? Because it was a smaller city. However, it became an important city in God's plan. Throughout the Old Testament, we see Bethlehem come up at various times. Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, died near Bethlehem, and she was buried near Bethlehem. Ruth and Naomi, in the book of Ruth, came to Bethlehem. And it is in Bethlehem that Boaz fell in love with Ruth and married her. And of course, the greatest human king of Israel, David, was born in Bethlehem, which is why the city of Bethlehem became known as the city of David. And now, God promises that one day, the city of David would be the origin of the promised Messiah who would be from the line of David, humanly speaking. This is what he means when he says, the one who is to be ruler in Israel. He is the Messiah, the one promised to sit on David's throne. And this Messiah would come from the insignificant little town of Bethlehem. But something you must realize is that Jesus, the Messiah, would not be insignificant. Micah tells us that his coming is from old or from ancient days. Now, this could refer to his descent from the line of David. That's promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to read that in your own time later and see the promise that God makes to David there uh, about, about David's line. Because Jesus' veins flowed with royal blood as one descended from David's line of old. But really, I think that the bigger aspect here is the eternal aspect, that the Messiah is one. Another way to say the end of verse 2 to translate where it says, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Another way from ancient days is from days of immeasurable time, from eternity past. The Messiah is God the Son. He is the second member of the Trinity. He has been in existence and constant fellowship with God the Father from eternity past, he has no beginning. His incarnation on earth predicted what would mark, that's predicted here, would mark the beginning of his work on earth for the deliverance of mankind from sin. But this was not the beginning of his existence. This is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan of salvation. And in that little town of Bethlehem, this ruler, Micah says, would one day be born. And when he was born, in his rise would begin, he would do great things for Israel. We continue reading. He says, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So Micah here in verse 3 begins to to promise the reunification and the restoration of the nation of Israel. Micah has predicted that there would be a scattering of the nation of Israel. That's what would happen when when Babylon would come in. 
Jesus was born at a time when the people, though they were together, many of them were together in the nation of Israel, they were still scattered and not under their own rule. Today, Israel is an independent nation. However, we must still admit she is still scattered and marginalized by many. Micah promises that one day the ruler will return again. And when he does, he will reunite the nation of Israel. You and I have to see over and over again in Scripture, God is not finished with the nation of Israel. And in verses 2 and 3, Micah is here connecting Jesus' two advents. He's looking ahead and he's seeing not just the first one when, when Jesus would come to die for the sins of mankind and rise again to offer eternal life, but he's seeing when Jesus would return yet again to rule and reign as the Messiah as he would rise to power. In the second advent, Jesus would reunite his people under him. We see here also that the ruler will be the security of his people. He would care for them. Verse 4 likens the ruler to a shepherd. That he will lead his people in the strength of the Lord. He will tenderly guide and direct them. The people will be secure in him and experience great peace as a shepherd brings great peace and security to his sheep. The self-existent, self-sufficient, sovereign God will be the security and glory of his people. You know, he, God, the ruler, Messiah, he is the only one who gives and guarantees peace. Jesus will fulfill all of these things. And it's interesting here that that once again, God uses the picture of the shepherd for his people. This this is used time and again in a a positive and comforting way when God speaks of his people. God likens his people to the sheep of his pasture, and he is their shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the, what? Good shepherd, right? Shepherds provide protection. And guidance and peace to their flocks. And in Jesus today, you and I can find such peace and guidance and protection in our lives. Jesus gave his life for all, and through faith in him, you can have peace with God by the forgiveness of your sin. We live in a world that searches for peace at every turn. We live in a world where peace is promised by almost every other political leader that rises to power. But the only place to find peace is in Jesus Christ. It's not going to be found in some vice that you've given yourself to. It's not going to be found in, some, in something you do to, to try to dull the pain of your life. You're only going to find peace in a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus guides all those who belong to him. He is due then all the majesty and glory as God. And Micah says, okay, we talk about the spiritual side. For all of us who know Jesus Christ, he is our shepherd, right? But Micah says that he will literally one day return to be the leader of his people. That's what he's predicting here. And as the powerful ruler, we're going to spend the rest of our time in the rest of the chapter today to see the ruler's deliverance, the work that he will do among his people. And the first thing that Micah promises here 
is that there will be a deliverance from the enemies of the people. We begin reading at the second part of verse 5. It says, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Then they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. God promises that Jesus, the Messiah, will deliver Israel from her enemies. This powerful ruler, the Messiah, will bring peace to the nation because he will defeat Israel's enemies. We see here that that Micah uses through this prophecy from God this picture of Assyria and Nimrod. Assyria and Nimrod are mentioned here as symbolic of any potential enemies that God's people will face. When they come into the land to do harm and to attack God's people, they will be opposed. The Messiah will raise up leaders They're called shepherds and princes to lead his people against the enemy. He talks about seven shepherds and eight princes. The idea here is that there will be more than enough leaders that God will raise up to repel the enemy and claim ultimate victory. God will deliver his people from the enemies who attack her. The nation of Israel has experienced war time after time in her history. We read about it in the historical sections of the Word of God. We read about it in our own history books. In recent days, we read the news headlines and see the war that is still going on in the nation of Israel. God's people are faced with many enemies. And in the last days, things will not change. But here's the promise. When Jesus returns, these things will end. He will have the last and final victory. He will claim complete and full deliverance. And when he does, he will preserve a remnant of his people. And he promises to do great things through these people he has delivered after this final decisive victory. Look what he says in verse, uh, down here, starting in verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. God promises that he's going to do great things in and through his people. When he delivers them. He says that they will be like the dew. And what he's talking about there is they will be refreshing and influential. They will be a blessing to other nations and people groups. As I said earlier today, we we must understand that, that Christ's kingdom will not be made up of exclusively Jewish people. But it, it is through his people, the nation of Israel, he has made these things known and made them a reality. This has been God's intended purpose for his people all along. He worked among them that they may be a light and a blessing to all the nations. They were, the people of Israel, they were supposed to show what a relationship with a sovereign God looked like. They were to be different than all the nations around them. They were to shine that light forth. Now, 
if you had to give a report card to the people of Israel how they did on that, it probably wouldn't look really great, would it? They struggled, right? There were times they served God, and there were many times they didn't. They were, though God's intended purpose was for them to bless other nations. What was God's promise to Abraham? That he would bless those who blessed him, right? There's a positive side to that promise. Jesus, this powerful ruler and promised Messiah, came by way of Israel. When, when God said to Abraham, through in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, guess who he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. That's the greatest blessing, right? That, that he would offer all salvation who come to him, but he will rule and reign over all the earth. Jesus is the powerful ruler and promised Messiah who came by way of Israel. Now, by the same token, Micah then predicts that they will also be used, his people will also be used to execute God's justice on her enemies. Just as surely as Israel will be a blessing to other nations, she will be a terror to those who oppose her. She will be, as Micah calls her in verse 8, like a lion, and she is led by the Lion of Judah. And no one will be able to deliver her enemies, for none can stand against the Lord. Her hand will be lifted up in power over her enemies, and all those who oppose her will be dealt with, and says here they will be cut off from the earth. Understand again the context in which Micah speaks the, these things. He is, he is all throughout the book and continues throughout the book. And again, there are, there are contemporaries like Isaiah. They are predicting a very dark time in the nation of Israel. When the nation will be captured and taken away. The northern kingdom in 722 is captured by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom in 586 is captured by the Babylon, by the Babylonian Empire and taken away. And the people are all but eradicated, right? They're, they're taken, God preserves them, but they're not there in their lands. And as they enter this dark time, here's what God promises them. That his judgment is not eternal. That one day, he would deliver his people once and for all. Though they have been restored to their land, Israel still today has many enemies. And we, who are not Jews, we still feel the enmity of the world towards God. We live in a sin-darkened world. We live in a cursed environment plagued by the results of the fall. But one day, we too will see the ultimate victory that's claimed by God. And through his people, through the nation of Israel, God will establish his reign. And in so doing, God will then deliver his people. We see not only in the ruler's deliverance, we, don't, we see that not only is God going to deliver them um, from, from their enemies, but God is also going to deliver them really from themselves. And we see that in verses 10 through 15. God's people are, are far from perfect. If you read the Old Testament, you understand that, right? If you paid attention to some of the reasons Micah was sent to Israel, you've picked up on the fact that God's people struggle. But one of the greatest things about God is that he not only gives victory over his people's enemies, but he also gives them victory over their own sin. Here, 
He promises to cleanse their lives from some of the specific sins they struggled with them. What he's promising his people is he's promising them that one day he will make them complete in himself. And we see first that God will destroy his people's dependence on their military might. Look at verses 10 and 11. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. God has just said, hey, I'm going to come, I'm going to rule and to reign, and when I do, you're going to be the, the ones who are going to destroy the enemies. And he says this, and I'm going to destroy your military might. I'm going to destroy your fortified cities. I'm going to destroy your power. Over Israel's history, God had given her great and mighty victories. God used the Red Sea to bring the might of Egypt crumbling down. He rewarded the people's obedience in walking around Jericho, destroying the city. He used a fearful man with 300 men to end the terror of a mighty army. He used a devoted servant with a sling to begin the subjugation of the Philistines. And in each of these cases and more, it is clear that it is God who gave the victory to his people. He may do so through the means of weapons and armies, But it is God who gives victory. God says that one day when he returns, he will eradicate all military might. He will eliminate all strongholds. He will bring to ruin, what is it here? All the manifestations of the strength of man. He will bring to pass a realization of what the psalmist says in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So God says, one day, there's going to be no more chariots, no more horses, no more walled cities. You're going to trust me. With the Messiah ruling in power, there will be no need for these things. Therefore, they will be removed, that they may not tempt the people to place their trust in these things instead of in the Lord. And that's exactly what that temptation is. So what is God going to do? Well, God is going to begin to purify his people by taking away the things they might trust in instead of him. And again, when you look at the nation of Israel and you see her history that she has had, she's, she's dealt with so many enemies and so many wars, it's, it's understanding to think, well, I mean, these are things that those people are going to trust in. And God says, I'm going to take those away. You don't need those because you need me. In our own lives today, there are things that we as Christians, that God has blessed us with, there are resources he has given us, and other things like this that we enjoy, but these are never to be the focus of our trust or the source of our security and strength. That trust belongs to God alone. And it is God's refining work in, in the life of a Christian to lessen our dependence on the things of this life And to draw us instead into greater trust in himself. And these are not always um, exciting experiences, right? Perhaps you in your life have, have gone through a trial or a test that God has ordained in your life. And it was not a fun experience. It was a painful experience. 
But as you came through on the other side, you began to look at what God had done in your life. You said, but it was a good experience. Because in this, God drew me closer to himself. God showed me, I I don't need this, I need him. God promised us to do that to those who belong to him. Read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, and you'll see that. God promises that in these things, he makes us more like himself and, and helps us to draw closer to him. He knows exactly what it is in our lives we need. And one day, in God's eternal kingdom, he will bring us to complete and total trust in him. One day in his kingdom, Israel will trust him in such a way. That is his promised work, that he will deliver his people from themselves. Secondly, in this idea that God delivers his people from themselves, he promises to eliminate any form of witchcraft from among his people. Read what he says here in verse 12, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. What is God promising to deliver his people from? Well, he's promising to deliver them from anyone seeking to commune with demonic spirits and using the powers of evil. Again, I I know I have said this in recent weeks, and I continue to remind us of this fact that, that Satan and his forces are very real and very powerful in this life. They will falsify even miraculous workings with demonic power. They will ensnare people into believing in counterfeit power, trapping them in darkness. Satan is at work in our world today, and he has been since the fall of man. And God's own people have had their own struggles with this. As I thought about this passage this week, I went back and I looked at that passage um, in 1 Samuel, where Saul goes down and he talks to the witch who lived at Endor, the medium at Endor. Do you remember that from the Old Testament? And why was that medium so afraid? Because she actually saw something, right? When Saul went down there and wanted to talk to Samuel, you know, she said, oh yeah, you know, we'll, this is my version, okay? You know, we'll, we'll make it. And then the Bible says she, she screams, she lets out the, what, what happened? Who'd you, what'd you see? And, I, and again, when you read the text there, you come to understand that, I don't think this was normal, right? That she actually, something actually happened. God, God's people gave themselves over to these things from time to time. Yet God proved to them his might and his power above any force of Satan. When Jesus was on earth, he battled against the forces of Satan time and again. Because, again, I don't like to say it this way, okay? But if you're the enemy, okay, I'm not asking you to think like Satan, okay? But if you are the enemy, when would you throw everything you have against God? It's when his son is on earth. So why do you think God, Jesus, dealt with this time after time? He showed that there are no challengers to the power of God. There is no might that can stand against him, not even death itself. People, even God's chosen people, may give themselves over to occult practices, but they will not stand against God. And God promises that one day when he comes, he will end the powers of Satan in his kingdom. And then third here, God promises that he, in his war against his people's own selves, he will destroy their idols. He says, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands, and I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. Over the years, 
God's people struggled mightily against idol worship. And sometimes they didn't struggle at all, but gave themselves fully to it. Israel had been delivered from Egypt. Egypt, if you understand your history, was a polytheistic society. The people of Israel had been given the land of Canaan, a land whose inhabitants and surrounding nations worship many false gods. And as the people of Israel prepared to enter the promised land, look what God said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 17 and 18. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. What is God warning his people about? He's warning them against the, the, the false gods that the Canaanites worshipped. God is the only God. He is unique. He is holy. All others are nothing but man-made falsifications. What are idols and false gods? They are attempts to satiate the feeling within us that we need to worship something. And what are all false gods? They are nothing but a reflection of our own sinful selves. God called on his people to abandon these things and to follow him exclusively. And here's what he says. One day, you won't have an option. What does Paul say? Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are no options in God's kingdom. He will destroy all of these idols, ending worship of them. He alone is God. There are no challengers. And in his kingdom, the powerful ruler will reign alone. Now today, I would venture to guess that most, if not all of us in this room, probably do not struggle against worship of a carved image. If I was to come over to your house for lunch this afternoon, I would probably not have to wonder at the statue of Baal sitting on your dining room table. I would probably not have to uh, ask you questions about this guy with the big round belly that you go up and rub and worship, right? I'm not talking about Santa Claus. I'm talking about Buddha, okay? But in our country and churches, we find that we nonetheless are full of idolaters. We worship at the altar of family. We sacrifice church, ministry, and a right relationship with God for our busy schedules, our time at home, our continual outings, and more. We burn incense on the altar of free will, giving into our own desires, doing what we want to do instead of heeding what God says in his word. We buy into the God of keeping God in a box, giving him what we think we need in order to allow us to indulge in our guilty pleasures and sin. We fall down before the idol of materialism, ever consumed with how much something costs, how nice something looks, padding the bank account, building our portfolio, and expanding our reach. We engage in worship of self, making ourselves the center of attention, doing things that will make us look better, engaging in actions we know will put us in control or benefit us in the long term. These and many others our world is consumed with, and sadly many Christians are consumed with as well. Idolatry takes many forms in our lives. Some of these are open and flaunted. Many of these are squirreled away in the dark corners of our hearts, cleverly disguised to look like good things. 
and in God's established kingdom, there will be no idols. And if you are a Christian, you are part of God's kingdom. God calls for this. In your life, there should be no idols. There should be nothing that comes between you and a right relationship with God. There should be nothing that is so sacred that you say, well, I'm going to hold on to this because this is worth it. It's not worth it. Jesus is king. And God, ex- God will deliver his people to worship him fully and completely in his kingdom. And God promises that this will all happen in his just judgment. He says in verse 15, And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. God is going to, to execute vengeance and wrath on the disobedient. This is how God treats sin, with anger and wrath. Because it offends his holy nature. And we look at that and we say, wow, I mean, that's, that is harsh in judgment from God, but it's just judgment. And really, this is wonderful news for all of us who trust in him. Because this is what it means. One day, there will be a perfect place for us to live once again. And one day, we'll be glorified and perfected to live in it. You understand that you and I, even as Christians in today, we live in this flesh that can't live in God's eternal perfect kingdom. We have to be completely remade, glorified in God. And God says one day he's coming. This is real hope. These are real answers. This is true joy and expectation. This passage is exactly who Jesus is. He is the promised powerful ruler who was born in Bethlehem. The babe in the manger that we celebrate at Christmas is the sovereign Lord of creation. In what has quickly become probably my favorite Christmas hymn that we sing, and we introduced a couple years ago, Joy Has Dawned. At the end of that hymn, the hymn writer says uh, this, this line. Um, and I just quickly forgot what I was going to say. But he says, he says the line, once a babe in Bethlehem, now the Lord of history. I always take exception with that. I would put still the Lord of history, right? Because he always has been and he always will be. But think about that. That little baby that we look at, we say, oh, you know, we put it in our manger scenes, and we, we hopefully are reminded of that. Remember, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's exactly who Micah said he would be. He is the one who would bring these promises, who will bring them to bear. He has come, died for sin, and will place you in God's kingdom through faith in his finished work. And one day, he will return and fulfill these promises made to Israel. One day, sin will be defeated, and all those who do not trust in him will be punished for their sin. All those who belong to him in salvation will live in his eternal kingdom, enjoying its bountiful blessings and riches. Because Jesus is the Messiah, all who trust in him look forward to his return to claim final victory. Jesus is the powerful ruler promised to come. He came as Emmanuel, God with us, born in Bethlehem, a small and insignificant city. But Jesus is not insignificant. He is exactly as this passage describes him. In his first advent, Jesus claimed victory over sin and death and offers that to all who will trust in him. Please understand 
that in your natural state, you are a sinner in need of rescue from eternity in hell where you would be separated from God. And Jesus offers you eternal life. He offers you salvation from sin. He offers you life in himself. And the question is, if you haven't before, will you trust him today for life and deliverance? The holiness and justice of God are met and satiated by the loving and gracious work of Jesus, the Son of God. Christian, you have the hope of God's kingdom. The church is not Israel, but God's kingdom will include more than just Israel. And through Jesus, we have this hope that Jesus will rule and reign and we will be with him. So today, we see that he does his work in our hearts, convicting us of sin and empowering us to live for the kingdom of God. And so our calling in God is to live for him in his power for his glory. Father, thank you for the word of God and its power to change our lives. Thank you for the promises of God about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you that Jesus came and has given us deliverance from sin, has secured eternity in God, and is coming again. Lord, today may that be a comfort and a reality check to our hearts. May it be a comfort that we have something to look forward to as Christians, that we can take hope that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. And we can have hope that everything will be made right one day. Maybe a reality check to our hearts because if there's one that doesn't know you, that's not the eternity that waits for them. They face an eternity separated from you in punishment for their sin. Lord, I pray you would convict them of that today. Maybe a a reality check to Christians that in the meantime, we're called to live out the gospel. We're called to, to, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have given to us to indwell us. We're called to live for the kingdom of God here on this earth. Lord, may we do so. May you convict us and empower us to do so. That we may not only live to your glory, but share with others what you have done. Draw them to you. May you use us in some small way to reach others for the kingdom of God. We ask as we close the service today, you would continue to do your work in our hearts. May we be willing and able to do that which you have called us to do and respond to you. In your name we pray. Amen.